This is a Suno India production and you're listening to the Suno India show. How did our political leaders and intellectuals envisage the idea of India and Indianness? What were the issues that bothered our leaders then and how were we as a nation concerned about these issues? The debates in the constituent assembly that drafted our constitution are a reflection of the idea of India as a nation and the country's aspirations. We at Snow India are happy to announce that we are releasing a podcast series called Contested Nations on this very subject. It is researched and hosted by the Equals Project. The Equals Project is an initiative that helps bring awareness about constitutional history and the processes by which the constitution was written. Did you know that some members of the Constituent Assembly wanted to include a fundamental right to choose your partner? Did you know that the city-state of Aunt was the first constitutional republic in India? Why was the report on the accession of Hyderabad not released till 2013? What really went into creating the Constitution of India? The Constituent Assembly of India met over a period of nearly 3 years to discuss, debate and decide upon the rules and norms that would govern independent India. Unlike the rosy depiction in popular history, the assembly members were bitterly divided on their vision for the nation. At its core, the assembly was discussing what it means to be Indian. What are the values that would underpin the nation? Questions that we continue to grapple with in India today. Welcome to Contested Nation. a podcast produced by the Equals Project and Suno India a podcast that explores both the questions of identity that were being discussed within the assembly and the union that was being forged outside its hallowed halls each episode will explore one issue that was crucial to the constitution and the creation of India and will discuss its continued importance today Join us as we explore India's founding moment. Freedom and power bring responsibility. That responsibility rests upon this assembly, a sovereign body representing the sovereign people of India. You can listen to this podcast on Suno India's app, now available on Google Play Store or any other app of your choice. Hello I'm Meenaka Rao hosting this episode of the Suno India show. I speak with Shruti V. She's trained as a lawyer and is the founder of the Equals project. Okay Shruti, how did you know you get interested in this work? Why did you start like working on the constitution and looking at constituent assembly debates? That's such a great question. So I trained as a lawyer, so I studied, you know, the constitution and constituent assembly debates, but to be honest, when I was in law school, I don't think I was as interested in it as i am today i think for me what is fascinating is that it makes me feel hopeful you know when i look at the constituent assembly debates 
i think about okay the issues and the concerns and the debates that we have today that seem you know uh, depending on who you are it can either fill you with hope or it can fill you with despair but they're not new they're the same things that or the same issues that people back in 1947 were debating and discussing you can argue that the tenor of some things has changed but overall they are the same issues that we are discussing back then and discussing today and for me that feels a little hopeful that we do have the tools to speak to one another irrespective of what our political opinion might be and that we also have the tools to come to some sort of a compromise or a solution that might not be ideal but that might work in helping us move forward so for me i think looking back at the constituent assembly debates is a source of optimism and that's one reason why i really like looking at it i think the second reason is just insanely fascinating the sort of people who inhabited the assembly their stories their motivations um it's incredibly interesting and we don't spend enough time talking about it you know there is uh, the city state of aund in modern day maharashtra where which had the first constitutional republic in india in 1937 the raja of aund stepped down and they implemented a gandhian constitution which was in place for a good 8 to 9 years before you know aund became part of independent india so these incredible stories of people who um who work in ways that you know or do things that that boggle your mind but do it out of uh, a sense of a greater good do it for certain values that they really believe in and it's really fascinating to me to be to be able to explore that history and a history that isn't that well explored in popular imagination in india i think some lawyers are talking about it but not more generally and so i think for me that's really why i love the work that we do at the equals project so shruti uh, we are releasing a podcast series called contested nation about the constituent assembly debates and we can't wait for it to begin i wanted to talk with you basically to reflect on a few issues because it's the 75th year of independence and uh, as it's been so hard to have a fair debate uh, you know without raising sentiments or threats and uh, what do you think we can learn from the members of the constituent assembly and you know how how did they envisage the idea of a healthy debate that's a great question manaka and at the equals project what we are trying to understand is through the prism of the constituent assembly and the constituent assembly debates what it can teach us about some of the founding values for india what the vision for the indian nation was how the members negotiated with others whose views they didn't agree with you know in popular history there's this rosy picture that the british left and then everyone lived happily ever after and we created this nation together now we all know that it's a lot more complicated than that if you look at the constituent assembly people were very very divided on what their vision for this new indian nation should be they'd been fighting the british all this while but they'd also been discussing what would happen after they left and what would this new india be and that's really what they're discussing in the constituent assembly so 
debate, uh, discussion, even fighting with others about what India should be is not new necessarily. It's been happening since the constitution was written and since the constituent assembly was written, or since the constituent assembly was formed. And if you look at the sort of issues that the constituent assembly is discussing, it's not very different from what we see in public discourse today. There are very familiar fault lines. They're talking about caste, they're talking about religion, they're talking about regionalism, they're this fierce debate within the assembly on uh, the powers of the center and the powers of the states. In fact, at one point, someone says the you know, center is carrying out a fraud on the states. So in terms of the issues that they were discussing, they're very, very similar to what we are discussing in India today in 2022. Even the tenor of some of the debates is very similar. You know, at one point in the assembly debates, Someone actually yells to a Muslim member of the assembly, go to Pakistan, which is, again, very similar to what we hear uh, sometimes in public discourse today. What the assembly at its core was discussing is what does India mean? What are the values that will define this nation? And what does the Indian identity mean? What will it encompass? And those are questions that we're still grappling with in 2022. And that's really what we want to explore through the podcast. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you've taken us to, you know, what are probably, you know, some of the major issues that were concerning, you know, uh, these members of the Constituent Assembly, uh, you know, and, you know, what they were debating about. Could you give us a glimpse into some of these debates that were raging at that time? So I'll take a couple of examples. Obviously, this is endlessly fascinating. There are so many issues that we could go into. Uh, but I'll pick a few that we also explore on the podcast. One is the right to free speech that you just picked up on, Manika. So by the time the Constituent Assembly is formed, there's an idea that there have to be some fundamental rights, that the right to free speech and expression is important. And this will in some way set apart independent India from the British colonial power that ruled us before. And it's important to keep in mind that many of those within the assembly had been jailed for speech and expression. Sedition was a huge um, cloud that had been looming over many of the members within the assembly. And then once they are in power and once they have to draft a constitution, they suddenly realize that some restrictions are necessary. And this throws the assembly into great disagreement. There are those who staunchly defend the right to free speech and expression, who say that if we don't guarantee the absolute right, then how different are we really from the British? Then there are others who say that, look, we want to guarantee the right to free speech and expression, and we will guarantee it in this new constitution. But this can't be absolute. And their fears are grounded very much in the violence that they see happening in India in 1947. And I think it's important to remember that India in 1947 looks very, very different. Uh, the borders are just being drawn. There's large-scale violence all across the country. And there's a very real fear that this nation state is going to fail. 
In fact, the British think that, you know, we're just going to ask them to come back and rule at some point. So those who argue for restrictions on free speech couch it in terms of law and order, in terms of the violence that's unfolding across, uh, in terms of the failed freedom experiments that have happened in its uh, in other post-colonial countries. One example that they look at is Myanmar, where uh, there is a military coup and you know the democratic experiment there fails. So they're trying to guard against that. They're trying to build a strong government with strong freedoms, but also with the ability to control the violence that's happening in the country. The other part of it is looking at the type of society that India is in 1947. It's a very unequal society, divided by economics, divided by caste, divided by region, religion, etc. Will free speech and absolute free speech be used against minorities? Will it be used against the lower caste? And this is again a very real fear that those who promote uh, restrictions on the right to free speech are arguing for. So I think that is a really interesting debate to see how both sides who in some way or the other, uh, you know, truly believe in free speech, now suddenly find themselves arguing against each other uh, about the practicality of governing and how much freedom can you have and will absolute freedom get in the way of governing well. And I think those are the same sort of debates that we see today too, right? What are the restrictions on right to free speech? How are they justified? That's not very different. Another interesting topic that the Constituent Assembly, or at least the Fundamental Rights Subcommittee looks at, is the right to choose your own partner. So there is a proposal within the Fundamental Rights Subcommittee that there should be a constitutional right to choose your own partner. At this time in India, if there are two people of different religions who want to get married, then either one of them has to convert or they have to declare that both of them are atheists. So there is a proposal to say that this shouldn't be allowed in India as long we recognize everyone as an equal citizen and you, the individual should have the choice to choose their own path. The proposal doesn't get passed. It's never, it doesn't make it to the draft constitution. But I think at its core, it talks about this fundamental divide that the Constituent Assembly is talking about between individual rights which is what the constitution is trying to enshrine and the constitution is trying to make prime the relationship between the citizen and the state and a person's identity as a citizen but recognize that community ties are really really strong and so this conflict between individual rights and community norms and community rights is something that you see in many different places in the constituent assembly debates. It comes up in the right to choose your own partner. It comes up in uh, the reformation of personal laws. It comes up in the discussions around the uniform civil code. So it's constantly there. And the assembly members are navigating this aspiration that they have for a free, liberal, individual-based society 
and the reality of that not being the case in India, whether in 1947 or 2022, and the reality that many people don't want that. There are also many feminists within the assembly who advocate heavily for individual choice. They feel that if we give primacy to uh, community customs, then ills such as sati or child marriage, which have been hard-fought wins for the social reformist and for the feminist movement, will not happen. So there is a lot of tension around these very same issues in the Constituent Assembly. And I think the core of those uh, disagreements haven't changed so much in the past 75 years. Okay, uh, so I mean, uh, the other issue that, you know, it comes repeatedly is, you know, the representation in the Constituent Assembly and, you know, it appears to be a majority of members appear to be from the Indian National Congress, right? Uh, and basically Hindu upper caste men, most of them. So, you know, can you, can you give us an idea about how this probably skewed representation, you know, how it seeped into the debate? This question of representation is one that the constituent assembly itself discusses at various points. Now, you are right that if we were to look in sheer numbers that the Indian National Congress is the most well-represented and by far the most well-represented political party. There's some representation from the Muslim League, few members from the Socialist Communist Party. There are a number of representatives from the princely states, but by and large, the Indian National Congress is the largest political representative there. Now, I think it's important to think of the Indian National Congress or any political party, not as we look at it now, but they're an amalgamation of a lot of different political opinions. So within the Indian National Congress, or the Indian National Congress nominates people to the Constituent Assembly that are actually political. So if you, for example, look at somebody like Alladi Krishnaswamy Iyer, who's in the drafting committee, he has never taken part in active politics. He's a lawyer. He has spent most of his life at the bar. And he is nominated by the International Congress, not for his political views, but for his legal acumen. They even nominate a doctor, Dr. P.K. Sen, who I think eventually goes on to perform the first open heart cardiac surgery in India. Again, for the medical knowledge and the life sciences knowledge that he brings. So one thing to remember is, I mean, Ambedkar himself, right? He is not, he's actually bitterly opposed with the Congress. The Congress party actively tries to make sure that he loses his election in Maharashtra, but then he gets nominated from West Bengal. It's a long, fascinating story. But eventually, after partition, Ambedkar gets nominated to the Constituent Assembly on an Indian National Congress ticket. There are people who we would consider as communists today who are nominated on an Indian National Congress ticket. There are people who we would definitely consider as the Hindu right today who are nominated on an Indian National Congress ticket. So viewing it as a single party is, I think, a fairly simplistic view of the people who 
were nominated on a Congress party ticket to the Constituent Assembly. I think there's a wide variety of views. And if you look at the debates, it shows you that they weren't afraid to express these views uh, or to disagree with the Congress leadership. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Now, of course, having said all of this, they did still belong to the Indian National Congress Party and the will of the party did hold through on many occasions. So that is that is a truth, but I don't think it's as simplistic as just looking at the political affiliation of a person on paper. Now, the second part, which is, yes, it was predominantly men. There are 15 women who are nominated to the assembly. But actually, by the time the assembly wraps it up, this number goes down. It's not even 15 at the end. Some of them die, some retire or resign. They're not re replaced by other women. There's at one point a proposal that female members who vacate their seat in the assembly should be replaced by other female members. But unfortunately, the proposal doesn't pass. So I think by the time the assembly wraps up, it's like nine or ten women. So it, it drops. So it is predominantly male. It is predominantly upper caste. There are very few Dalits in the assembly. Dakshaini Veliudan is the only Dalit woman in the assembly. Dr. Ambedkar, of course, is the most prominent member of the Constituent Assembly itself. You have Jaipal Singh Munda, who's the only Adivasi representative. And he points that out too in the assembly, that there's nobody else representing this oldest section of the Indian population. Their states have very little representation, the princely states. They get to nominate some members, but it's not in proportion to their population. So there are very many flaws. It's not directly proportional representation. It doesn't represent the true population of India. But I am not sure that there are very many mechanisms that we have today that can properly represent the population of India. I don't know if that's true of parliament. Does parliament reflect our population accurately today? Does a state assembly do it? I'm not convinced. So despite its imperfections, I do think it was fairly representative of different political views, of different demographies, even though it's undeniable that there was there was some identities that were more prominently represented than others, especially on caste and class lines. And those views are seen in the debates. You can see the approach that they used reflecting these identities. There is no question that even within the assembly, you find like a lot of overt sexism. There is uh, one point at which they're talking about political representation for women. And there's a cantankerous member of the assembly who says, if you want to be ruled by the heart, you can elect women. But if you want to be ruled by the head, you have to be elected by, you have to elect men. And we all know we want to be ruled by the head or something like that. Something very overtly sexist. Um, this sort of thing is rampant. There are women's concerns, um, concerns of lower caste. I mean, even though the assembly is committed to removing caste discrimination, to removing untouchability, their approach is not really that radical in terms of removing social and economic inequality. In fact, it's one of the biggest criticisms of the Constitution of India 
that while it guarantees political equality, it does very little in terms of transformational equality in social and economic freedoms. And that to a large extent is the fact that its members were upper caste, were generally upper caste men from well-to-do backgrounds. So how transformational would they have wanted to be? And I think that's a fair point. The question of minority rights, again, now this took a backseat partially because of partition and the creation of Pakistan. So many Muslim League members who were originally nominated left for Pakistan. Those who were left within the assembly suddenly found themselves on the back foot. So a lot of demands that were made by the minorities earlier were no longer tenable in the assembly. So undoubtedly different different identities were not or their demands were not as strongly represented within the constituent assembly or the constitution. And I, I, I think that is a criticism that the assembly itself faces. In fact, there are three people who refused to sign the Constitution of India. Uh, the final draft, three members of the assembly refused to sign it, and two of them refused to sign it because they think the Constitution doesn't protect the minorities enough. The third person says, this is a fraud on the state, so I don't want to sign the Constitution. So this criticism or the failure of the Constitution in some ways to be truly representative is one that is acknowledged within the assembly, but ultimately the solution or they feel that what they have come up with is representative enough and it's practical to move forward to hold the first general elections and to govern and ultimately the indian constituent assembly is more representative than a lot of other constitution making bodies that we see if you look for example at the american or the french constitution making bodies they, there's no representation there they're all men of wealth and men of power and a very small body of men who are writing the constitution so uh, I, I guess it can always be better coming to the fact that you know we whatever said and done we do have you know a remarkable constitution but you know i mean i have like a very cliche sort of question on this you know like was you know, was our constitution sort of overreaching and, you know, in a sense, too idealistic a document that, you know, failed to reflect the inequalities in our society. And, you know, how was, how, how were these aspects debated and understood? Like, you know, how was, because, I mean, we've still clearly not, you know, managed to sort of fulfill it, I mean after 75 years of independence so like how how was how was it foreseen at that point of time and debated mm -hmm. i mean the constitution is idealistic it is a visionary document and this is something that all the assembly members recognize they are not writing for the society that they are in at the moment but they are writing for the society that they hope india will become after independence I think it's important to remember that in 1947, when the, or in 1946, really, which is when the assembly first meets, there's a lot of lack of clarity about what's happening. First of all, the borders are not even clear at this point. Partition hasn't been announced, the borders haven't been announced. So they don't know, even physically, what this country will look like. They also recognize that different parts of the country have different governance structures, different 
different rights like there are some parts of the country which have already some sort of voting and adult franchise in place and there are others which are straight monarchies where the kings uh, believe that they have been descended from the sun and the moon gods there are parts of the country where women are being educated women are being nominated to the legislative assembly and other parts where you know there is barely any women's rights to speak of so on and so forth there's a lot of different types of diversity in the country and so partially what the constituent assembly members are doing is saying okay so given this disparity what is going to unite us going forward what kind of values are we going to stand for as a nation together and what kind of people do we want to be and i think the constitution its norms its values reflects that it may not reflect what was the reality in 1947 or even in 2022 but it reflects the hope and the aspirations that the constitution creators and the nation builders had for india what they hoped india would become what they hoped indians would work towards and actually if you look at the assembly again the members acknowledge this throughout they are very skeptical of the whole project you know if you look at the last few days of the constituent assembly of course there's a sense of triumph there's a sense of congratulatoryness you know they are all happy that this constituent or constitution making process has come to an end they are happy at what they have achieved at the values that they have enshrined within the indian constitution but there's also a note of fear and caution that this is ultimately just a document and if we don't work towards it then all these values on paper will not mean much i mean ambedkar sort of speaks of it best he says on the 26th of january 1950 we are going to enter into a life of contradictions in politics we'll have equality and in social and economic life we will have inequality and if you continue to deny this inequality then we are putting our political democracy in peril so it's a sentiment that is echoed by a lot of people in their closing speeches of the assembly that this is great that this is a wonderful foundation for us to build our nation on but unless we act on erasing social inequality on erasing caste inequality on erasing economic inequality the political equality that we have granted will have little meaning now like i said earlier there are people who argue that the constitution wasn't transformational enough that it didn't it wasn't radical enough in guaranteeing economic and social equality so if you look at some of the historical constitutions that are there they make a very far reaching demands on economic and social equality there is one which demands that the state should hold the all property that the right to personal property should be banned ambedkar has uh, a draft constitution where they actually discuss setting up new villages which would where dalits would live only dalits would live and that both the physical and the economic site of oppression which is the village that would be removed 
that you have these resettlement villages where Dalits would live. Therefore, they would not be oppressed by the upper caste in these villages and uh, caste equality to some extent will be guaranteed. So there are lots of different types of demands that are made or proposals that are put forth even before the constituent assembly meets. But ultimately, nothing too radical in terms of economic and social equality makes it to the constitution. So I would say that, you know, the constitution, it's not a case of the constitution being too idealistic. Actually, that's exactly what we want a constitution to be. We don't want it to say, okay, we cannot solve uh, caste inequality or we can't solve economic inequality. We want the constitution to be idealistic. If anything, I think the criticism is that it left it for, uh, it, it sort of assumed that political equality would lead to other outcomes without being radical enough in guaranteeing economic and social equality. Please rate our podcast and leave a comment if you like it. Underreported and underrepresented stories can become mainstream only if it reaches more people. So please support us by visiting our contributing page on our website sunoindia.in or follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram.